following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. You ever marvel at... Um, why some people seem to be so into certain hobbies or pursuits or activities, you ever think, man, there's got to be a reason that guy is so excited to do that thing, to be involved in that sport, to, to play that instrument, to, to be engaged in that game, or even to be so excited about his job or his family or whatever the case may be. Well, once you find the answer to that question, why is so-and-so so excited about such-and-such, such, you might actually be a bit let down by the answer. Consider asking uh, a great athlete, why is it uh, that you're so motivated to get up and practice hours on end in this sport? Uh, what inspires you? What, what gets you up in the morning to do this? And his answer is, well, I'm pretty good at it and I make a lot of money doing it. That is not a very inspiring answer. I'd be pretty dissatisfied with that. What you want to hear is like Eric Liddell saying, I run uh, at the pleasure of my God or because uh, it glorifies the Lord. But frequently that's not the answer we get from people when we ask them, why are you so excited about the things that you're engaged in? However, Scripture does give us many satisfying reasons for why God's people must be so excited or zealous for His praise. And that's the subject of our sermon tonight, why we praise God, taken from perhaps an unlikely passage of Scripture, Psalm 57. You see, Psalm 57 is situated here um, in a series of psalms describing some dicey and dangerous situations uh, that King David finds himself in. It's the first psalm in the Psalter to have this superscription or subtitle set to Al Tasheth. And perhaps some of your Bibles have a footnote there that says literally that phrase means do not destroy. And that probably is a fair rendering of it. Um, whatever the case may be, there are several psalms in the Psalter, three in a row right here, that have this subtitle, and all of them deal with these dangerous situations where destruction seems to be right around the bend, just around the corner. And there's a desperate cry to God for deliverance from this destruction. Perhaps the situation in the cave then here that David's facing is uh, described in greater detail in 1 Samuel 22 when he's on the run for Saul or even in 1 Samuel 24 when Saul accidentally goes into the very cave Dave is hiding, David is hiding in. In any case, we don't know exactly when this psalm was composed, what it, the occasion was. <coughs> we just have some clues, but we do know this. It was composed on an occasion when there was an urgent need. There was an urgent need for deliverance, an urgent need for help. And as we read through this psalm, what we see and what I'm going to seek to really put before you is that in the face of fierce adversity and adversaries, God gloriously saves his own by his truth and his mercy. <clears throat> Those twin themes in Jude's epistle, but also in this psalm. Again, in the face of fierce adversaries, God gloriously saves his own by his truth and mercy. 
this particular psalm divides neatly into three parts. In the first three verses, we have given to us the cry for saving mercy and truth. And then in verses 4 through 6, we have the conflict resolved. And in verses 7 to 11, we have the song of praise or chorus of praise. And so I think if you're using the New American Standard, that is how uh, the editors of that particular translation have divided up this psalm. I think that's a fair way to divide it up. They don't always get it right, but they get it right here in my estimation. Uh, those three parts again, the cry for saving mercy and truth, the conflict resolved, and the chorus of praise. As we look at the first three verses, we're given this cry that David makes for God to save him, for God's saving mercy and truth, or loving kindness and truth in verse 3. And as we look at these three verses, we're given three features of that cry. We're given the cry's content, the cry's basis, and also the cry's confidence, or the confidence that lies underneath the cry. The content of the cry in verse 1 is um, it's very urgent in its construction. Read it with me. David says, Be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. We have this repetition right at the very beginning, which intensifies the cry, and, and that's part of the content of it. It's not merely a request, but as I said this morning, it's a, it's a plea. David is pleading with the Lord to deliver him, to be gracious to him, to save him from destruction. And what he's particularly um, highlighting about God in his cry here for salvation is the trust he has in God, that God is a refuge in him. Look at what he says. My soul takes refuge in you. And then using the picture of a mother hen covering her chicks with her wings. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge until destruction passes by. I want to remind you that all of these psalms, in fact, all of Scripture in, in one way, direct or indirect, gives us a directory for prayer. We can frame our cries around uh, the very language that we're given in this altar. If you're at a loss for what to say, when you feel hemmed in on every side, when you feel attacked by wicked men without, or even uh, when you're wrestling against your sin within, you can, you can go to the Word and you can use this language as either a script for your prayers uh, to help you or even as a rubric to instruct you. Uh, be insistent and in pleading. Use repetition in your prayers with God. Uh, plead with Him, but also highlight those things that the psalmist highlights, namely that He is a refuge and a trust to us. And I want to remind you, perhaps uh, you don't remember or you weren't even here in Antioch when I preached through Ruth, but that picture of coming under the shadow of the wings of God would have been near and dear to David because that's exactly what Boaz, his ancestor, said about Ruth, uh, his ancestor, as he commended her and blessed her and, uh, and, and, and highlighted for her in, in Ruth 2.12 that she indeed had come to take refuge under the wings of the God of Israel, and that she would be blessed and find safety there. That's especially true as we think about what David's looking for in God's loving kindness, his chesed, his loyal love, his faithfulness, his mercy. Uh, that was, again, a key word in Ruth. And so you wonder, was David thinking about this family history, which became Scripture, even as he wrote this psalm? So much for the content in verse 1. We can move now into the basis in verse 2. David says, 
I will cry to God. And who is this God? He is God most high, God who accomplishes all things for me. In this, we're given the basis of his prayer. That is the character of God. You can plead with God on the basis of his promises, on what he says he shall do, uh, but more fundamentally, we are to plead with him on the basis of who he is. And notice what David highlights, these two things about God. He's powerful and transcendent. He is God most high. He can accomplish all things, but not merely that he can, but that he's willing to do so for his people. Like the leper crying out to Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can cleanse me or you can heal me. And Jesus, what does he say? I am willing, be cleansed. Here in uh, Psalm chapter 57, or Psalm 57, verse 2, David highlights not only the power of God, but the nearness of God to him, God's covenant faithfulness to him. You are the God who accomplishes all things for me. You are my Savior. You are my defender. Uh, is this the basis for your prayers as you go to God for help? Indeed, it must be. Uh, children, you don't go to your parents and, and say, um, you're able to feed me and stop there. You say, you're able to feed me and day in and day out you do. You're faithful. Please, uh, will, won't you do so again this morning because I'm hungry. The same way we turn to God and we say, you're able and I know you're willing. You accomplish all things for me. That's the basis of our cry. And then the confidence that David expresses in verse 3. Notice what David says. It's almost as if he turns and he, he speaks to those that are around him in the prayer meeting. And he says, he will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. David is confident in God. He's confident that God will send uh, his loving kindness or mercy and truth from heaven to deliver him. And as he does so, he's doing something very interesting for us. As Christian believers reading this psalm, he's personifying God's mercy and truth. It's not that he's sending some abstract principle from heaven or some kind of force of nature or supernature, but David is expressing confidence that God will send someone to deliver him, someone who is the embodiment, perhaps even the incarnation of God's loving kindness and covenant loyalty and truth. Who do we know that to be? That is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Indeed, it's Christ alone who delivers us, who comes from heaven as God's saving mercy and truth uh, and brings us deliverance in adversity, who protects us from the evildoer, who shields us from the fierce adversary who seeks to destroy. It's not only that he alone does it, but that he is sure to do it. He's not only merciful and powerful, but also true to the word of his father who sends him. And this cry that David makes in verses 1 to 3, it assumes something that we haven't quite yet gotten to, and that is the conflict itself. The superscription gives us a clue. Obviously, the cry is implying that something's wrong, but then verses 4 to 6 in the second part of our psalm uh, bring us a clearer picture of what exactly this conflict is like, as well as the resolution of the conflict, how God answers the cry in verses 1 to 3. So look at verses 4 through 6 with me for the conflict as it's resolved. Again, we're given three features of it. In the first place, 
were given the danger of the conflict. And then the second place, a faithful response to conflict, perhaps surprising and uh, where it appears. And then thirdly, the climactic deliverance or resolution uh, of the conflict or from the conflict. The danger of the conflict in verse 4, it's described in uh, an ima imaginative uh, language, in forceful language. It's appropriate for a poem. My soul is among lions. I must lie down among those who breathe forth fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. These, um, these different pictures of lions and fire-breathing monsters and men with, with teeth like the implements of war, spears and arrows and a, and a tongue of a, uh, that looks like a sword, this is very common biblical imagery for fierce adversaries. This is, uh, these are common biblical and, and even cultural images in ancient Near Eastern literature for the enemies of a people, and particularly in the Bible, for the enemies of God. These are men who come spitting forth slander and lies, attacking the truth of God, who speak with malice in their hearts and even perpetrate great evil against God's people, attacking His mercy and His goodness in doing so. But these are also not just common, but the fiercest possible dangers that we can imagine. That's how David characterizes his enemies, as the fiercest, scariest, most intimidating monsters that you can think of. And that is the conflict that David finds himself in. That's the danger of it. Can, can you feel it? Can you feel just how near... David is to destruction as he characterizes his enemies in this way. Have you ever felt such uh, fear and, and, and vulnerability as if you're put in a really tight spot and there's no way out, either from sin within or from wicked men uh, around you? Perhaps that's the way we feel today in our culture, which seems to just be so dead set against the things of God and even common sense. And we wonder, where is the way of escape? What can we do in this dangerous conflict as a church, as a people, even as individuals? Well, look what David does in verse 5. This might be surprising to you. This is the faithful response to such a conflict. He bursts out uh, in, this, in this statement of praise to God. He says, be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. He's going to repeat this again in verse 11, but here in verse 5, it's remarkable. Just as he's reflecting on, on the danger that he finds himself in, as he's being hunted down by Saul, perhaps as the Edomite is even there, even now, the reports are coming in of the priests at Nob being massacred. David bursts out in praise, be exalted above the heavens, O God, let your glory be above all the earth. Is this random? Is this just out of nowhere? Of course not. It's intentionally placed here in the heart of the psalm. We are to persevere in prayer and praise in the midst of trial. Not only because David did that as a model to us, but because God is worthy of all praise based on the confident statement that David made in his cry for deliverance in verse 3. He indeed will deliver his church. He will save us. Consider what Jesus says in John 12, 28. 
where we, we get an echo of this, of this same sentiment, if not the words themselves. Jesus says in that passage, um, he says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. But he does this in the context of his impending death. For the very previous verse, he said, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. And then he bursts out like his forefather David with this praise, Father, glorify your name, as if he's saying, Be exalted above the heavens, O God. This is the faithful response to the conflict that we perhaps face in this world. In fact, certainly will face in this world. And so then what's the consequence? What's the result of all this? Look at verse 6. We think one thing's coming, and then God surprises us. David says, I, they have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me. That is, they've laid this, this skillful snare, this trap for me to fall into. And what happens? They themselves have fallen into the midst of it. You see, God's power to deliver his people is unstoppable. There's no scheme of man. There's no power of hell that can entrap you if God purposes to deliver. If you cry out to God for salvation, he's faithful to save. Not even, not even death can stop you from coming to the celestial city to dwell with him for all eternity. Don't you see what happens? God turns the very designs and, and, uh, and evil machines of those who would afflict his people. He turns those very things against his enemies. Who do you think of? Haman in the book of Esther, setting up uh, a gallows 50 feet high for Mordecai. And what happens? Haman himself is put to death by the very instrument he had built in his own backyard. And I recently read that the man who invented the guillotine, Mr. Guillotine, was in fact put to death by the guillotine. I mean, these things happen. Uh, they're ironic. Perhaps they're even a little humorous at times, depending upon the gravity of things. But the point is that again and again in Scripture, we see God turning the very instruments of our oppression and persecution against our oppressors and our persecutors. Consider the instrument and implement of death and torture upon which our Savior hung on the cross. That self-same uh, tool of oppression and persecution and subjugation and torture was used to break the power of sin and condemnation and death, to absorb the wrath of God, the just wrath of God, on our Savior for the salvation of sinners, but more to the point, to crush the head of the serpent, so, such that when Jesus cried from that instrument of death, it is finished, he was referring to the destruction of the power of Satan himself, who at every turn was seeking to destroy Christ and his people. This marvelous wonder of God's purposes, that he is faithful and true, to use even the tools of our enemies to destroy them and to preserve us whole and entire. Well, God has heard the psalmist's cry. He's resolved the conflict now by the time we get through verse 6. 
And here in verses 7 to 11, a passage which will be repeated in Psalm 108 as well, the psalmist turns over a chorus of praise to his mighty deliverer. And there are three features again to this section of the psalm, this chorus of praise. There's a resolve that's articulated and expressed in verses 7 to 9. There's a reason that's mentioned in verse 10. And then there's the aim in praise in verse 11. The resolve to praise in verses 7 to 9, notice David uses repetition again. He says, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I am resolved, O Lord. I am resolved. I am established, my God. I am established. To do what? I will sing, yes, I will sing praises. And this unshaken resolution in verse 7, it turns then into a call to wake up to the praiseworthiness of God in verse 8. Awake my glory, and that is my speech in particular. Awake harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn to do what in verse 9? We see what he's resolved to do, to give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. Nothing can stop David. Having been delivered out of evil, he will praise his God. He is resolved, even established, steadfast to do so. This might call to mind, especially verse 9, those great songs of redemption. After the crossing of the Red Sea, when Moses and Miriam lead the people of God in that song of redemption, when, uh, when Barak and, and, um, and um, oh, I'm totally blanking, uh, on, uh, and, and Deborah, when they lead forth the people of Israel in a song of praise after the defeat of Sisera and, 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 and the army of the Canaanites, which had come up against the people, they sang a song. Uh, we can even think of the songs at an individual level of Hannah and of Mary and of Zechariah and of Simeon and of Anna. These songs of redemption, which are sung, as it were, on the field of battle, while we're still facing down our foes, in the very face of those fierce adversaries. And what terror it, might stri- it would strike into Satan's heart to hear the songs of praise from God's people, even on the field of battle. There are um, many times speaking about the, the different wars in the Reformation when men would go to battle and they'd sing forth psalms of God's power and might over his enemies, and it would strike fear into the hearts of their adversaries. But even outside of uh, explicitly Christian history, this is something that's been done throughout human history. In World War I, you would have bagpipers who would play bagpipes to encourage the morale of the allies and to strike fear into the hearts of the Axis powers. And, and during the Civil War, you'd have that rebel cry, which would shake, uh, cause Yankees to shake in their boots. And I'm not taking sides in any of these things per se, but what I'm putting forth to you is this idea that our songs of praise are cries that will strike fear into the heart of our enemy, that adversary of old. And why should we be so resolved to praise our God in this way? The reason is given in verse 10. David says, For your loving kindness, again, your mercy, is great to the heavens, your truth to the clouds. He uses the picture of the heavens and the clouds to express infinity. Uh, They're the closest things that we can see in nature that seem to be infinite, so far beyond our reach, even extending beyond where our sight ends. 
And that's how far the mercy and truth of God extends. That's how powerful it is. This picture of infinity, it draws our minds to the infinite love and majesty and power of our Savior, of God himself, which was expressed to us and given to us in the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the reason for our praise. Not anything in ourselves, not even necessarily anything that's been done for us. So certainly that does give us uh, occasions and, and motivation to praise. But ultimately the reason is the being of God himself. That he is his mercy and his truth perfectly. And then the aim and praise in verse 11. That repeated verse. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. That's what we're after. As we praise God, as we go forth in our spiritual warfare against the powers and adversaries of this, of this present evil age, the world, the flesh, and the devil, we go forth for the glory of God, that he would be exalted above the heavens, and that he indeed would be known among all nations. You see, in, in the second book of the Psalter, there's five books, and in the second one, in which we find this psalm, there's this theme of the, the worldwide extension of God's glory. The emphasis in the second book is not so much on Jehovah, the God of Israel. That's the name most frequently used in the first book. But rather on Elohim, God most high over all the earth which is the name most frequently used in the second book of the Psalter. And here, what David is crying out for is for this worldwide global recognition that God himself is David's deliverer and the deliverer of the people of Israel, indeed the deliverer of all those who will place their trust in him. There's a global scope of God's rule over the nations that was promised to David in 2 Samuel 7 and ultimately realized then in Revelation chapter 22. In Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5, we read of this uh, global extent of God's redemption in his kingdom. Then he showed me a river of the water of life clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. So you have pictures here of a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom for the healing of the nations. And as the nations recognize that this Christ has finished this healing for all those who would trust in him, for all the elect, then this Christ would receive all glory and exaltation above the heavens. Together with verse 9, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. We see something of the commission that God's people are given. What uh, Paul mentions in Romans chapter 15, verse 9, as such, that as he describes this, for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. 
Indeed, this is what we're after. This is the aim of our praise, that God would be glorified even among all nations. For God, who is glorified in our trials and our triumphs, should be glorified in all the lands of the earth. So why are you into or excited about the hobbies or pursuits or interests that you have? Why do you care about, say, college football or working on your car or fixing up houses or painting or music or sports or art or whatever the case may be? What is it? What are you looking forward to doing this coming week? Are you looking forward to caring for children or getting good grades or listening to uh, particular music or playing certain sports or watching certain things? Well, what about the praise of God, your Savior and your Defender? The praise of God, your Deliverer, as it's expressed here in Psalm 57. Are you excited about that? Are you zealous for that? Are you looking forward to the Lord's day when you can gather with his people to sing these songs of redemption and strike terror into the hearts of our enemy, Satan himself? Well, consider Christ's work of deliverance as our king. Consider his work of purposeful praise as our great high priest who even now is interceding for us before the throne of God in heaven. You may face off against Temptation this week that seems overwhelming. Perhaps you'll even come up against forms of persecution or other enemies this week and discouragements in your family and in your work. But remember that in the face of fierce adversaries, God gloriously saves his own by his truth and his mercy. We might say by his word and his spirit. He will hear you whenever you cry to him. And in hearing you, he will then send forth his mercy and his truth from heaven to rescue you, his people. He will resolve all your conflicts, and he will put into your mouth a fresh song of praise. Now, we might not realize that resolution in the way we, might, we would expect or even hope for in this life. We might die with uh, conflicts yet unresolved. But believer, trust that as you are brought into his presence, all of that will fade away. And a song of praise will bubble up from the bottom of your heart and spill forth from your mouth to him who is exalted above the heavens. Consider how he has ultimately speaking resolved all our conflicts in Christ. That indeed it is finished. Behold his saving mercy and his truth. In Jesus Christ, for a true sight of Christ as he is given to us in the gospel will compel you as it compelled David to praise him even in the field of battle and in praising him to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. May this be our aim even as we go forth from this place and into our work this week. Let us pray together. O Lord most high in heaven above, you are indeed exalted above the heavens. They cannot contain your glory, for you created them, and no created thing can fully comprehend the majesty and power and loveliness of you, our eternal God. And we now dedicate ourselves to your service this week. Lord, we pray that you would put a new song of praise into, uh, on our mouths and in our, on our lips and in our mouths. That you, Lord, would bring much glory to yourself in our lives. 
sanctifying us and sustaining us against all your and our enemies. And we as well dedicate to you a portion of that which we have received from your generous hand, that you might use this even in the extension of your kingdom, such that all nations would say, be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.